Hi, I'm Richard Bronze, and this is the first episode in a new podcast series, Back to Fundamentals, from the Energy Aspects team. We'll be covering different energy market topics with our analysts, and today I'm joined by Amrita Sen, our Chief Oil Analyst, and Rob Campbell, our Head of Oil Products, to talk about our 2021 global oil balances. Now, the first cut of these numbers, which we recently released, show pretty massive draws next year in both crude and liquids inventories, at rates that would really drain tanks around the world. Before we dive into how the market is going to manage this situation next year, Amrita, how are things looking today in the market and for the rest of this year? Thanks, Rich. Um, like you said, you know, if we want to talk about 2021 balances, uh, we really need to know where we stand today. And well, let's just say we barely know where prices are going to end up in the next month or even balances for that matter. Uh, so, you know, talking about this 2020 balances become really hard unless and until we really figure out where we stand right now. And I think one of the things we have realized over the course of the last uh, few weeks is that because we are dealing with numbers that really no one's ever dealt with before, uh, whether demand was down 10, 20, 30 million barrels per day. We've never had to uh, put these numbers into a balance, right? So everybody, including us, uh, thought that we would be hitting tank tops uh, around the world. Our demand estimates for April uh, was that it would fall by about 27, 28 million barrels per day. Um, and that would lead to tank tops. But of course, the market always tends to uh, find a solution through prices well before uh, the event actually happens. And we did see negative prices, which essentially uh, meant that supplies have responded far quicker and steeper than anyone expected. And while demand data always lags and we are still waiting for the numbers to come out, it's very possible that demand actually didn't fall by as much. Sure, it probably still fell by at least 20 million barrels per day, but may not have fallen by 30. Which yeah. I don't You know, here, Amrit, it's so important as well to keep in mind the way, the way we talk about demand is not actually counting up the number of barrels of oil that have been burned by people starting their cars and driving down the road. It's these, you know, weird product supplied numbers that are derived from a series of calculations at the, at the refinery and uh, wholesale level. So we miss whole swaths of stockpiling and, and destock, destocking on the retail level, which, uh, which you know, accounts for probably some of these massive swings we're seeing now. No, exactly. So all of these efforts to marry up mobility data with weekly EIA stats are probably a bit misplaced if you're looking for very kind of neat correlations. Yeah, no, it's that's 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 exactly the thing is you know you, you, these mobility data show you very interesting trends, but they are it's a challenge to get them to line up with stats from the EIA, which effectively show you the movement of gasoline or diesel, what have you, from the refining system into the distribution system. And I think that's kind of the problem we are dealing with uh, when talking about balances, because exactly like you're saying, Rob, I mean, so much of this is quote unquote, what we would say tertiary stockpiling, but they get counted as demand. Um, but 
anyway, even after taking all of that into account, I think the bottom line is where we stand today. Yes, supply has reacted very quickly. Um, and we are now in a supply driven market. Uh, the shut-ins in North America are probably close to 3 million barrels per day right now. Um, and this is on top of all the OPEC plus cuts uh, that we've seen any other kind of country that's just saying, look, we're not going to drill. And I think this is the interesting thing, right? It, you don't actually have to announce shut-ins. Just not drilling automatically means your decline rates pick up and, you know, rich in all the OPEC countries, you've seen the same as well. And this is part of the problem in terms of coming up with numbers for balances and why it's so challenging, because it isn't that, oh, you know, so-and-so has announced 2,000 barrels per day of cuts, and I'll put that into um, uh, into our balances. It's about figuring out, okay, so-and-so is saying we're not going to drill. Automatically, that decline could be 100, 200,000 barrels per day. And that's the challenge that we are facing right now. And I think exactly because I think when you look at OPEC Plus, we've definitely, we're seeing you know, six, seven million barrel a day drop from those elevated April levels in just a couple of months. And you can choose to see that as huge compliance, um, still short of the kind of 10 million barrel a day or near 10 million they promised, but uh, pretty, pretty uh, impressive compared to their historic record. But in reality, a lot of that is involuntary. It's simply that there wasn't in the very near term, the demand for that oil either at home because of domestic lockdowns or in terms of the export market. And I think the real question for both uh, participants in that deal and also for North American producers and elsewhere is as demand starts to come back for crude, as prices start to respond, which we're already seeing, how much and how quickly do some of those supply shut-ins get reversed? And I think this is why, you know, I am still a little bit reluctant to just be like, I mean, yes, we've, we have said the bottom is in and I do believe that. But the rally that we've seen in prices, I'm still a bit reluctant to say this is necessarily fully justified. We overshot to the downside and that's why we are rallying higher now to somewhat compensate for that. But we are already starting to see US producers say, some of them say, oh, you know what, I can bring back one or two rigs. And to your point, I think some of the cheaters within OPEC will start to look at this and say, we can probably push a little bit more out. So we could unravel at least parts of this uh, rebalancing that we've seen. I'm not saying we're going to re unravel all of it because one thing, and this is very critical, not just for now and second half 2020, but also for 21, 21 will be very supply led because I think the interesting thing that we have seen because of the amount of uh, supplies that we are shutting in. We've never had to deal with shutting in so much. Some of the wells, um, horizontal wells in the US, will probably really never come back, the old ones. But the newer ones can easily come back. But you do have the same problem in other parts of the world as well. Iraq, potentially, Oman, parts of Russia. Um, the longer prices stay lower, the longer even, not the horizontal ones, but the vertical wells also stay down, the harder it is for them to come back. And I think that's where this quick recovery in prices can potentially put some of our 2021 forecasts at risk because effectively that is based on the forward curve. That's based on the view that you know prices stay lower for longer. But if you get a price recovery quickly, supplies which we currently predicting will fall, non-OPEC supplies will fall by about a million barrels per day. It could easily turn out to be flat. 
Yeah, and we're only looking for refinery runs in 2021 that are going to be comparable to runs in 2016. So, you know, that's, that's going to be something like almost a million and a half barrels a day lower than in uh, 2019. Uh, so that's next year. Uh, and part of this, of course, is because we just won't be flying as much. There'll be jet molecules that can go other places. So there's a lot of uh, variables still to take into account here. And we're, we're going to talk in a future episode in a little more depth about refining, but I think that really matters for um, particularly those OPEC producers, the ones that you, some of the ones you've mentioned, Amrita, countries that if they can sell more, you know, regardless of what the OPEC plus deal talks about in terms of limits for the second half of this year, limits for 2021, if they can push more oil out, they're going to be really tempted to do that at any price level, really, to secure um, revenues to try and keep their economies kind of afloat and cope with this situation but what we have what's really struck me is the scale of the capex reductions we've seen uh, and how quickly they've come compared to the last downturn year globally well over 100 billion already stripped out of capex what's your thinking amrita for next year say prices are uh, picking up and even if we see it faltering a little bit this rally sort of shapes up as we go into the kind of budget setting for upstream operators next year. How important is the size of the CapEx recovery in 2021 production, or is that just about later in the decade supplies coming back? Yeah, I think that's going to be critical. But to your point, it probably is too late to turn 21 around. Because even if if companies decide to bring back CapEx, say, at the end of this year, the impact of that really becomes 22, 23. But to your point, I mean, this is the first time we are predicting non-OPEC supplies will drop year on year for two consecutive years uh, since the 1980s. I mean, that's a big, big deal. And again, this goes back to some of it is just because U.S. production, we believe, will decline again next year. Um, the base declines, even if a lot of the shut-ins do come back at $30 WTI, for us to get sustained CapEx investment in U.S production. Um, it has to, WTI has to go above $40 and stay there. And even then, you know, given all this focus from investors on ESG and your shale's really fallen out of favor. So money is going to be difficult. And if that doesn't happen, if money doesn't come in, the base declines, we predict base declines of 4 million barrels per day. If you don't drill anything new on wells that have come before April of this year, that's a big number to offset. So that scenario has changed. I think even if some CapEx comes back, I think it's very likely next year that we will get a decline in production. The question is, we are staring into a massive supply uh, crunch, so as to speak, even in 22, 23, because of the lack of spending now. Could we at least reverse that? Exactly. And, and on the OPEC side, you know, we've already been pretty generous in our 21 numbers in terms of production coming back, we've assumed an easing of some of the kind of long-standing supply disruptions, Iran, Venezuela, uh, Libya returning before the end of the year. None of those are certain. Um, and we've also, you know, allowed for quite a bit of GCC production to come back. There's still some headroom there. We think, you know, at the right price level, Saudi Arabia and the others can bring more production. That's probably going to be one of the additional supply responses uh, if we need to find more supply next year. Um, but that is going to eat into spare capacity and it does set us up if we're still tight on the supply side out beyond next year. Um, OPEC's not going to have that much more to give unless 
you have got a fully fledged return of Iran or unless you've got uh, big investments in countries um, that are that are you know volatile or unpredictable at best. And and to your point, Rich, I mean, I really do wonder about Saudi Arabia. We've seen twice now they've surged, done their kind of quote-unquote record production levels. Maybe next year is the first time we see them really tested on how much they can produce sustainably, that 11, 11 and a half, whatever that number ends up being. Um, I wonder if that's going to be kind of the key thing for next year that Saudis have been claiming and we really put them to test. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about the supply side. I think it is worth touching on demand and the kind of shape of uh, the recovery. Um, You know, we are still staring at what looks like a really severe economic uh, downturn globally. um, And for all the kind of very short term indicators, suggesting a pickup from the the worst of the lows we saw over kind of March, April. Um, You know, how long does it take and what does it look like in terms of a return to demand, Rob? I mean, it's. Uh, I'm old enough to be a little reluctant to get into this whole game of trying to forecast the future because uh, there's just there's far too many variables. And I remember people forecasting the future after 9/11 and getting it wrong. Um, but certainly, one thing we do know is that uh, airline travel is going to be fundamentally different uh, from from what it was before the crisis. Um, if if even if people become comfortable sitting uh, next to one another. Uh, for long periods of times, uh, what we have seen is the capacity of governments to very quickly uh, close down international flying. And and if if your people are worried that this uh, illness is going to spread uh, through international air travel and through these massive massive connections we have now with the rest of the world, uh, you know, by air, then then that is going to change fundamentally. We're just not going to see a recovery in international air travel. And for a lot, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that you know, something, something like two-thirds of, of global jet demand is linked to international travel. So taking that slice out of the demand side uh, is, is going to be massively important because it does mean that within the clean product mix of the refinery, there's just that much more clean product that can go into other places. Um, so we don't need to refine as many barrels of crude to produce the clean products that are going to be demanded. Um, but at the same time, you know, we also know that past experience has shown that even with high unemployment, uh, ultimately low prices will stimulate demand for, for transport fuels, not only in the U.S., but even in Europe. I and mean, people forget that the big recovery in diesel demand in Europe uh, after the last financial crisis was driven by low prices, and we saw European diesel demand grow very rapidly after many years of stagnation. So can we see that again? Perhaps. I'm not going to get on the bandwagon of everybody's going to start driving to work now, but, uh, but I think, it's, I think it's, it's very important to bear in mind that uh, the price effects that we have seen in the past, there's really no reason to believe they won't uh, manifest themselves again. In in fact, Rob, I was actually going to ask you that, you know, so many of our clients are asking us that, you know, oil demand has peaked and it's never going to go back. And I know we've, we kind of defer on that from them. But yeah, you know, I mean, where do you stand on this, this whole notion? I mean, I think what we've seen, I mean, first of all, it, it, we can have a peak in the, in the OECD, in the developed world. Uh, it's really hard to envisage a peak in, on Earth uh, at, just with current trends, given the size of the middle class in countries such as India and China and the aspirations those people have of living much the way we do. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's challenging at, at best. 
Um, at, there's a lot of chatter that we should that the government should seize this opportunity to ensure a green recovery. Uh, I don't think that's going to be the case in the U.S. Uh, certainly not under the present administration, uh, and in Europe, it's it's far from clear um, that this will be the the route it takes. You know, if anything, we may well see it happen. But you know, if you want to talk about substitution effects, you may also see substitution of airline and perhaps rail travel for automobiles. Uh, to some extent. So, you know, could we see more gasoline at the expense of jet? Absolutely. Um, you know, that these are, these are the difficulties that I think we're going to face for a while. And given that finding a vaccine for COVID is likely to be something that takes uh, at least 18 months, um, you know, this, this could be with us for some time. And I think that's that's the thing, right? Like the new normal, what people are kind of saying, oh, this is the new normal. I just don't think we have enough information to say this is the new normal. The new normal, to your point, could just look very different within the oil barrel composition, but doesn't mean total oil demand has necessarily peaked. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's really hard to talk about new normal when, you know, we don't know if our kids are going back to school. We don't know if, um, you know, all these things, right? We've not even emerged from the lockdown to, to whatever the new normal is supposed to be. Uh, and so there's a lot of prognostications out there that uh, are just difficult. I mean, take gasoline for demand for in the U.S., for example, right? Even if everybody in the U.S. who took public transport to work starts driving, um, most of those people live in New York City, and I don't know where they're going to park their cars. Um, but 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 on top of that, for, at least in the short run, the the effects of these tremendous, terrible job losses that have happened are going to massively outweigh whatever increase in driving are, is performed by the people who are still employed. In the end, employment is is the single biggest driver of gasoline demand in the U.S., and the U.S. is still the biggest gasoline market in the world. And and those numbers, which I think are still coming in week by week, just absolutely huge, you know, and here in the UK and in Europe, we've seen kind of policy measures to temporarily try and slow um, the the permanent job losses. But as this crisis extends, those schemes can't carry on in perpetuity. And there isn't a clear cut uh, adjustment for or new uh, kind of creation of sufficient jobs for all those people to relocate to. There are areas which are expanding and benefiting, but but huge swathes of the economy that, that won't come back easily, even if we don't have second waves of infections, renewed policy lockdowns, which which have to be there. As a Remember when we were all worrying about, you know, automation wiping out a lot of low skilled work? I mean, that, that work may have already been wiped out. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a scary thought. We've, we've accelerated, you know, and people have similarly said those jobs which can be done remotely, we've accelerated five, ten years of the transition to remote working. We've compressed it into a couple of months. It doesn't mean some people won't ever go back to an office, but will the majority of people go back to working full time or most, most of their time in the office? Possibly not if this is going to go on uh, for a lengthy period uh, and the new normal. But these are these are questions we're just, I think, beginning to get our heads around, let alone what the what it all means for oil demand. Yeah. And now, again, remember after 9-11, nobody was going to fly anymore. Um, uh, <laughs> never never say never again. Now I I know I know you and a lot of our team are are uh, feeling for that or desperate for that day when kids can go back to school and it's as long as it's safe of course and in the meantime are doing a, their own bit of homeschooling. So I wonder if Amrita Rob you can um, you know, wrap up today's podcast with with your couple of key takeaways. What are your lesson-ending highlights uh, for everyone? 
Um, yeah, I mean, look, for us, the critical thing is for 2021, again, we have to see where we end up in 2020. First and foremost, we need to see where we end up in Q2 2020, just to see how much inventories have built. And the reality is the inventory build might end up being maybe two thirds of what we were expecting. And that matters, right? Which means because we are predicting big draws. Um, and if the inventory starting point is a lot lower, we don't need to draw down as much to tighten up the market. Bottom line is next year we are showing very big draws absolutely led by the supply side because some of this production shut-in will not come back and whatever does come back will lag demand supplies always lag demand both on the downturn and on the upturn so that's going to be with us the other important thing is that all the talk that we've just had on demand, we actually don't expect demand to go back to pre-COVID levels next year at all. You know, even if you just flatline demand at this year, end of this year's level throughout next year, you get demand growth of 5.5 million barrels per day just because of the base effect. Um, and, you know, we are expecting growth of about 5 million barrels per day, give or take. Um, so, you know, this is, it's, it's not that we are bullish on the demand side. Yes, we expect a recovery of sorts. It's only by the end of 22 that we expect demand to go back to pre-COVID levels. And again, the composition is going to be different. But we are really setting ourselves up for this kind of supply-led um, spike or tightness in the market. And I wonder whether the world economy, given how poor the economic backdrop is, is going to be ready to take such high oil prices. You know, we are currently expecting prices in the 60s, but in some ways, which is essentially saying the forward curve is too low. But in some ways, if those balances turn out to be right with 3 million barrels per day of draws, prices can easily be triple digit. And I think there is going to be a clash in the kind of demand side and which is going to really scream if prices go to these kind of levels with unemployment at record highs. So it's going to be a very interesting year. Thanks for that, Amrita. Rob, any final words from you? Uh, very quickly, I would say that for the downstream side, the, the issues are, are long-standing and, and as yet unresolved. We had too much refining capacity before the crisis. Obviously, with demand coming in lower than the previous year, we're going to have more than too much refining capacity. And given the shift that we're seeing away from jet fuel, arguably that is going to be even worse. So I think that while we are certainly having to work through periods of constraint in some product markets, ultimately uh, it will be extremely challenging uh, in, the ref in the refining environment, particularly in the Atlantic Basin, uh, in this lower demand environment. We need capacity rationalization. And it's likely to be the case that Europe uh, bears the brunt of it, given that that's where you have some of the oldest, least efficient refineries and probably some that are not well configured for the, uh, the kind of market we're looking for in the future years, which is a lot of clean products, a little bit of gasoline, not so much jet, and very little residual fuel. So a lot of drama still to come. Well, thank you, Rob and Amrita, for sharing your thoughts. And thank you to everyone uh, for listening in to this episode of Back to Fundamentals. As I mentioned at the top, this is the start of a series of podcasts we'll be releasing. And our next edition is going to focus on refining and is going to be with Amrita and with Raul Alcamo, our head of refining. So I hope you'll join us uh, to listen in to that soon.